Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom, and today we're going to be focusing on energy issues, essentially the supply of electricity, water and fuel into the Gaza Strip. To discuss this with me today, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast, Eli Rettig. Eli, thank you very much indeed for joining me again today. Thank you, Richard, for inviting me again. So as by way of background, Eli was a guest of ours on the podcast about six months ago. Eli is a leading expert in the Israeli energy sector. He is the assistant professor at Barilan University and a senior researcher at the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies. Now, last time we spoke, it was actually full of optimism. Israel had just granted uh, permission for the Palestinians to begin to explore offshore natural gas. And we focused on the regional connectivity with the idea of uh, a regional electricity grid and supporting gr Israeli green energy solutions that would be a benefit for the whole region. Um, I'll park that for now and perhaps we'll come back to that later on in the conversation. But perhaps just to start with, you can help us make some order and to clarify and uh, explain the uh, what, what existed up until the 6th of October in terms of the supply of electricity, water, and fuel into... Um, so that's a good question, Richard. Uh, often when we're now talking about what's going on with the fuel supply and the electricity and the water supply in Gaza, and what does it mean, uh, we first need to kind of understand what was there before October 7th. Um, the situation in Gaza before October 7th was that 50% of Gaza's electricity came directly from Israel through 10 uh, electricity grid lines. 50%, um, that's about 120 megawatts, which is not a lot for 2.2 million people, but that's 50% of Gaza's electricity. So the day after the war started, it, when Israel said that it's cutting off electricity to Gaza, that was 50%. The rest of the 50% is locally produced within Gaza. 25% is from one power station that runs on diesel fuel. It needs around 17,000 liters of diesel per hour to generate around 65 megawatts. And the rest of the electricity comes from widespread um, private initiatives. Basically, uh, Gaza's population that can afford it have uh, either built, uh, bought uh, small-scale diesel generators and put it in their backyard or in their basements Hospitals have diesel-powered uh, generators uh, in their basements, water desalination plants, uh, factories, bakeries. They all have these small-scale uh, diesel generators. And one of the largest penetration of off-grid solar panels in the world. So during the day, 25% of Gaza's electricity is generated from solar panels. And when the sun sets, then the diesel-powered generators uh, come into play. And that means that when uh, Israel cuts off electricity to Gaza, then that's just 50%. The rest is locally produced, but it depends mainly on the diesel supply because uh, solar panels are nice, but they only work for around a third of the day. The rest needs the diesel. Um, and so when Israel also three days into the war decided that it's also cutting off diesel supply into Gaza, then it was just a matter of time until uh, electricity uh, runs out completely, you know, other other than during the day when the solar panels are off, there are also some batteries, but that those batteries work for another hour or two, uh, not much more than that. And can you tell us about the uh, the water supply as well, how that, uh, how, how much of that is reliant uh, um, on Israel? Right. So 
that's where things get complicated because um, Gaza is not reliant on Israel for water, but it is reliant on Israel for electricity and diesel to get that water from flowing. Because on a regular day, only 10% of Gaza's water comes from Israel. 90% is locally produced, uh, either from uh, groundwater, right, aquifers, um, or uh, water desalination plants. The problem, however, in Gaza, which makes everything so complicated, is that the groundwater in Gaza is not fit to drink. Uh, it is... Uh, uh, very salty because a lot of seawater uh, has gone into it and it is contaminated with sewage. Um, that has to do with how the Gazans are producing the water. There's a lot of overproduction. Pretty much any person in Gaza that can afford it and has the means has drilled his own well in the backyard uh, to get water outside because they don't trust uh, Hamas infrastructure. Hamas infrastructure is, is, is pretty much non-existent. And so everybody just drills wells and they're not properly drilled, they're not properly sealed. And so water, seawater gets into them when there's uh, rain, then sewage starts flowing into it and the groundwater is contaminated. It's not fit for human consumption, which means that the groundwater needs to go through water treatment facilities. So Gaza's water is either uh, underground water that goes through water uh, treatment facilities or it's uh, seawater that goes through big desalination plants. The problem with both these solutions is that they are very energy intensive. They need electricity from the grid in order to get the water flowing. Um, this is where things get complicated because um, Israel uh, gives 50% of its electricity, right? 50% of Gaza's electricity. Uh, the rest is from the diesel power plant, and the rest is from the small-scale diesel generators and the and the solar panels. But that's not enough to keep the um, water desalination working for 24 hours and the water treatment facilities working for 24 hours. Um, and that complicates the whole matter because there's a question of, is Israel allowed to cut off electricity to the Gaza population during wartime, right? What does the international humanitarian law says about it? Now, According to international humanitarian law, when you are um, either an occupying force or during wartime, you are allowed to cut off electricity and cut off fuel supply uh, as a wartime measure, as a temporary tactical wartime measure to blind your enemy, right? To create pressure on your enemy while you're attacking. Uh, you are not required to supply that. What you are required to supply according to law is either the provision or allow the provision by others of water, food, and medicine. You are you you cannot dry out the the population from water. Without electricity and fuel, the Gaza's population doesn't have water, um, and that means that according to international law, Israel has to give the Gazan population some kind of means to generate that water, either electricity or um, or the diesel itself, so it can generate its own electricity. Um, that this is why before October seven, Israel was supplying the electricity for free. So 50% of Gaza's electricity is coming from Israel, and Gaza didn't pay for it. Hamas doesn't pay the Israeli government. Um, on paper, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank was supposed to be paying for the electricity that, is, that Israel gave Gaza, but they are unwilling to because the Palestinian Authority is not willing to give money to Hamas. So the result was just uh, debt that was accumulated. Um, and after every few years, Israel just forgave the debt. The current debt is 2 billion shekels. Um, which is around right um, uh, uh, half a billion dollars, U.S. dollars. 
And uh, Israel just kept supplying it because it didn't have the option of just cutting it out because that would uh, cause the Gaza population to run out of water. And so uh, Israel is stuck in a place where tactically it does make sense to cut off electricity and diesel to uh, area where you are currently attacking. Um, the main issue with diesel is that it's dual use. Um, unlike water or food or medicine, uh, diesel can be used as a wartime measure, as a weapon, either to manufacture rockets or to power the underground tunnels, or the underground city, I should say, of Hamas, which uses also small-scale diesel generators to generate oxygen and to um, ventilize um, the tunnels. And so the idea for, the tactical idea for the Israeli defense forces were, let's dry out Hamas from diesel. If Hamas doesn't get any diesel and any electricity from outside, it will eventually have to come out of the tunnels because it will run out of air. Um, having said that, that tactical idea has a huge price to it because if you're drying out Hamas, you're also drying out the entire population from diesel, which means that the hospitals aren't getting electricity and the water desalination plants aren't getting electricity. And even if the water desalination plants are, are generating water, that water needs to get to the population somehow. There are no pipelines because they are other hit during the airstrikes or Hamas itself dug out the, those water pipelines in order to make rockets out of them which means that in order to get the water to the population, you need trucks and the trucks also run on diesel. So hmm. if you're not supplying diesel to the Gaza Strip, you're creating a huge humanitarian issue. Now, that is a acceptable price if this is a very short-term tactic, right? If you can dry out, if you say, okay, within a month, Hamas will dry out of diesel and it will have to come out of the tunnels, then that's a price worth paying. Um, that the Gaza population can survive a month without the electricity if we bring it water from outside. The issue is we do not know how much diesel Hamas has in storage. The assumptions are that likely they have prepared for the October 7 attacks a long time in advance and that they have stored at least 1 million liters of diesel underground, which is presumably supposed to last for at least four months, five months, maybe six months in advance. Uh, cutting off the Gaza's population from diesel and electricity for six months, that's not thats not sustainable. Um, the cost that you're creating, both from humanitarian purposes, but also for uh, uh, diplomatic issues, right? The diplomatic pressure that Israel is under um, is, is proving not to be, to, to, to completely outweigh the tactical benefits of trying to choke out Hamas. And that's the dilemma that Israel uh, faces. Do we continue to cut off electricity and diesel from the Gazas, from Gaza in order to choke out Hamas? But the price is that the Gaza population is not getting enough water. Uh, and so you need to find some kind of balance to, to get the tactical advantage, but also to prevent the humanitarian um, disaster that uh, it might create in the long run. I understand. Um, thank you for that. I've got kind of two or three follow-up questions just to, to, to just to check a couple of details. First of all, in terms of the water supply and 10% of it which comes from Israel, we understand there's one there's one pipeline to the north and one pipeline to the south. And I think the Israeli government announced that the north one was being cut off in an effort when they wanted them at the beginning of the conflict, when they wanted to, to move the population, incentivize them to go south. But the, the southern pipeline was still running. If A, is that correct? And B, can the can the capacity of that 
be expanded to help alleviate the specific water issue? Or is well, it not enough? It's true that the pipeline that goes south is still operational. But as you said, there's a limit to the capacity that the water can transfer. And even mm. if you get the water into Gaza, it has nowhere to flow into. You know, this is a this is a current active war zone. And um, to rely on permanent infrastructure is not something that is sustainable in a war zone because the pipelines are not there inside of Gaza. They are damaged. A part of them are damaged. There's no one to send to repair them. So when it comes to a war zone, when it comes to population continuously moving for operational needs, when it comes to a million people from the north going down and joining the million people from the south, you have to be very dynamic and you cannot rely on permanent water pipelines or anything of that sort because you need to move the food and the medicine and the water along with the population. And so in order to get water into Gaza, it's not enough to just have an active pipeline or an active desalination plant. You also need a lot of trucks uh, with a lot of diesel in order to move everything along. And you need a basic roads, et cetera. And if a road gets damaged, then you need to um, fix it. So why am I saying all of this? Because you have a situation where you have two narratives and they seem as if they're contradictory. You have uh, the narrative of the international community, the UN, UNRWA, that's saying um, Gaza does not have diesel. Gaza does not have enough uh, water. Gaza does not have enough medicine and food. And you have the Israeli narrative that's saying, yes, they do. They have a lot of diesel. They have a lot of food. They have a lot of water. And the uh, truth is somewhere in the middle, that both of the sides are right. It's not that there's not enough food or medicine or water coming into Gaza. It's that it's very hard to get it to the actual population because of the lack of infrastructure, because of all of the damage that was sustained, and because people are moving around. So, And, of course, because Hamas is hijacking some of those um, uh, resources, etc. So the main issue is logistical more than anything else. It's not that Israel is preventing from things to going in. It's what once they are in, it's very hard to properly disseminate them among 2 million people that are continuously moving. It's very hard to keep track about who got the rations of food and who did not, who stored, who stole them and put them in, who is actually Hamas agents that are right, just not, um, that are wearing civilian clothes and just took a truck and, 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 and scrammed with it. Uh, it's very hard to keep track on it. And that's where things get much more complicated. Um, and 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 when you are uh, at the IDF and you say, okay, I need to allow some diesel to come into the to the Gaza Strip because otherwise they don't have electricity for the water desalination plants. Otherwise, they don't have electricity for the hospitals. Then I need to allow some diesel to come in. But I also need to make sure that Hamas is not hijacking those trucks, right? So the sure. compromise was that uh, the IDF has been allowed been allowing over the past two months two diesel trucks to enter Gaza every single day two diesel trucks is around 60,000 liters of diesel and that is enough to generate enough uh, water in the desalination plants and in the major water treatment facilities in the south again enough when I say enough I mean they can generate enough water for 2 million people getting that water to the actual 2 million people that are scattered and moving that's another thing but that's enough diesel. And the idea is that um, if you just allow two trucks a day, then you can monitor what's going on with them. You can see exactly which hospitals they are supplying to and uh, which water desalination plants they're supplying to. 
And you also have the intel that tells you, right, with UNRWA, with the Red Cross, that is telling you this specific hospital, it has a diesel generator, and it needs this and this amount of liters of diesel to work for every single day. So right now, we need diesel for a week. And diesel for a week, that's, let's say, 25,000 liters of diesel. So the IDF makes sure that the, trucks, that the truck gets to the hospital and gives it 25 liters of diesel. If after three days, the hospital says we're, we run out of diesel, then that means that Hamas came later and took the diesel out of the generator and started. If after a week it says I, I ran out of electricity, then the IDF knows, yes, all of the diesel that we gave it was used for the purpose that it says, and we can bring it with another truck. Currently, that's the only way of doing it because, again, you're you're dealing with um organization that has embedded itself within the population and is constantly hijacking the resources that is being given. Um, so you need to somehow kind of balance uh, between those uh, necessities. Thank you. Um, just back on the electricity, you mentioned that the 50% is supplied fr from Israel. What's the current status of that supply? I mean, just like in previous rounds of con of, of conflict, the, the rockets fired out, out of Gaza have often hit those electricity pylons and kind of damaged their own um, supply uh, of, of the electricity. I'm presuming that's similarly here. And so what's the status now? Have they been repaired? Has that been restored? Or is that also kind of uh, a political question for the Israeli side? Right. So on the first day of the war, um, the electricity was cut from Gaza, not because Israel cut the electricity from Gaza, but because Hamas rockets hit the electricity grid. It hit all the power lines, which it happens all of the time. Every time that Hamas fires rockets into Israel, it hits the power grid because the power grid goes through the Israeli communities around Gaza Strip before they get into Gaza. So when Hamas tries to bomb the Israeli communities around Gaza, it inevitably hits some of the power grids, the power lines. Um, what happens then is that the Israeli electricity company comes in and at its own expense um, fixes the power lines and Gaza gets its electricity back, which is an absurd situation. But again, it's because of international humanitarian law where where they need the electricity for the water. And, and, and Hamas knows that. It knows it can sabotage the electricity grid and Israel will come and fix it for free. Um, the issue with, with that is that the longer this happens, the more resilient the population becomes because the population of Gaza has learned not to rely on the, um, on the national grid, on the main electricity grid in Gaza. Because even on a good day before the war started, the average person in Gaza would receive around four hours to eight hours a day of continuous electricity. Eight hours on a really good day, but usually four hours on average every single day from the main electricity grid. A, because of all of these power cuts and the dilapidated infrastructure that has never been uh, fixed by Hamas. You know, uh, Israel fixes the grid around Gaza, but whenever uh, Hamas fires rockets, a third of those rockets hit within Gaza. They fall short of their target. They ruin the electricity grid inside of Gaza and Hamas doesn't fix that. And every time uh, foreign aid comes in, either by the EU or the US or the UNDP, it is provided to Hamas in order to fix the power lines and Hamas takes the money and does something else with it. It doesn't bother on fixing the, the power grid unless, uh, unless the UN does it or some kind of foreign aid uh, workers come and fix the grid for them. Hamas just doesn't operate as a, as a sovereign. It doesn't care about the infrastructure so long as it has its own 
small-scale diesel generators. And so the reality of all of that is that the average person in Gaza has has learned not to rely on the on the grid. So they bought their own solutions. Either they, whoever could afford it, bought their own small-scale diesel generators, put it in their backyard, or they bought solar panels. And it's all private initiatives or initiatives paid by the UNDP trying to, or the EU or the US trying to kind of circumvent Hamas. Hamas doesn't care as if, if someone in Gaza you know, builds a solar panel on their house. Uh, they just come, they take a tax, and they leave, and, 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 and that's it. So what happens is that you have a lot of these entrepreneurs. You have people in Gaza that buy three or four diesel generators, put it in their backyard, and then sell electricity to their neighbors, right? Same thing with the solar panels, same thing with the whales. Uh, someone drilled the well, and he's selling the water to uh, its neighbors. And all of that means that it's very hard to kind of understand what is the current situation in Gaza, because a lot of it is off grid and a lot of it is off the books because the Gaza population itself does it independently from Hamas. It doesn't count on Hamas for anything. In the past 17 years, the rule of Hamas didn't build one major, a single major infrastructure project in, in Gaza was built by Hamas. Any water desalination plant, any water treatment facility, any major road, any major electricity grid that you're seeing in Gaza that has been built in the past 17 years was built by foreign aid workers with foreign aid money, mostly Western money, not um, Gulf state money or Qatari money. Um, Qatari money uh, goes in the form of hard currency to Hamas members, and then it just disappears. Whereas US and UN and EU money doesn't come as money, it comes as projects, as infrastructure. So they come and they build the infrastructure, but Hamas itself doesn't carry it, just taxes it, it doesn't uh, maintain it. And so even when the war started and Israel cut off electricity and Israel cut off the, the diesel, you still saw hospitals running for months and you still saw entire areas in south of Gaza uh, still having electricity and still running the bakeries, et cetera, because they are they are all off-grid, they all store diesel uh, for a while. And, and that's where kind of things get complicated because uh, at the end of the day, Israel needs to differentiate in some way between Hamas and the population. The population lives independently from Hamas. Hamas has stored its own diesel, Hamas generates electricity for itself, and the population generates electricity for itself. And you need to find a way to um, get the supplies to the population while still denying it from Hamas to kind of meet your tactical operational needs, which is to dry out the tunnels. And can I take you back just to another thing you mentioned earlier about the, the fact that the 50% of electricity supplied basically comes at the cost of the of the Israeli electricity company or 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 these or question or or does that get passed on also to the Israeli taxpayers? Does the Israeli um, electricity company take the hits on that or the or the government and what's the I mean this has been the situation as you say for for close to 17 years what's yeah. the uh, what's the rationale of the Israeli government to perpetuate that it's a good question you know um, yes I mean the Israeli electricity company takes the hit the Israeli electricity company is a national uh, company it provides electricity for free to 2.2 million people in Gaza, and it provides electricity for almost for free to another 3 million people in the West Bank. In the West Bank, they do pay, but also very late and in a very, this is not just an Israeli problem. The Palestinian Authority also has a very hard time billing 
its own Palestinian um, population because there's a lot of electricity theft going on from neighbors, etc. And and it it hurts. I mean, the IEC is under heavy debt, the Israeli electricity company, because it's expected to to provide electricity for free for political reasons and to fix these things. Yes. Um, why has the Israeli um, government, all of the Israeli governments, not just this one, right, the quote-unquote the most right-wing Israeli government in its history, why is it allowing it? A, because of, of, of the complicated political issue of, of humanitarian issue of you have to supply electricity to the population, even though they have their own sovereign, even though there's a, a government there, Hamas, but the government doesn't care about its population. At least it doesn't build any infrastructure for them. It's not finding any solution for them. So if you cut off their electricity, then you are to blame. And the international community blames Israel and not Hamas for, for what's going on in Gaza. Um, and the second is that Israel has been trying to fix it. Uh, in fact, uh, if, if it wasn't for the current um, attack, uh, what Hamas initiated in October 7, um, there were a, a bunch of really positive, large-scale infrastructure projects, which, are, which were already approved and in the pipelines that were about to happen in Gaza. And the reason why Israel still did that, despite the issue with Gaza, is that at the end of the day, the Israeli government believed, the Netanyahu government and the ones before that, believed that at the end of the day, Hamas wants to govern. Hamas cares about its population and Hamas wants to, and, and the belief was that, yes, it has its rhetoric, it has its very anti-Semitic charter, etc., but it's all rhetoric. At the end of the day, it has 2.2 million people to take care of. And if we improve the economy in Gaza, and if we build more infrastructure in Gaza, and if we build a port or an airport in Gaza, then eventually that's that that will calm down the issue, and and Hamas will 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 basically turn into what the PLO has turned into. PLO was also considered a terrorist organization, and now it's considered a moderate government in the West Bank. And the assumption was that Hamas will also transform into a moderate government if we give it what it wants. And so I've heard a lot of kind of talk about how what Hamas did on October 7 was because of economic hardship. That doesn't make sense because during this year, if it if it wouldn't have attacked, uh, the situation in Gaza would have been um, immensely better next year because there were at least four major projects that were about to start next year with negotiations, with the approval of Hamas. One of them was to develop the Gaza Marine Field, which is what we talked about in the last podcast, where, where I was so optimistic, right? Mm. Um, this idea that there's a there's a tiny gas field uh, offshore of Gaza. It's 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 very small. It doesn't make a lot of economic sense to develop it, but it makes a lot of political sense to develop it if the gas goes to Gaza to help it become more independent from Israel, because Israel doesn't want to keep giving free electricity to the Gaza Strip. So if it can get someone to come and develop the field and, and get the, the gas to Gaza, then Gaza can become more independent. And that uh, plan was approved in June of 2023. It was approved with Egypt. The idea was that Egypt will develop the Gaza Marine offshore gas field. It will buy some of the gas to fund the project. And the rest of the gas will go to Gaza to generate its own electricity. For that, you also need a gas power plant which Gaza currently doesn't have. It only has one small uh, diesel generator that can do 65 megawatts. So another project was called Gas for Gaza Project. 
And under that project, was, which was already approved by the quartet, right, the UK, the US, uh, um, together with Israel, was to build a very large gas power plant inside of Gaza that can generate 650 megawatts, right, 10 times what the current uh, generator can do, which is more than the entire demand of the, of the Gazan population currently, which would really have uh, upgraded the infrastructure. And that was already approved. And the idea was that that gas power plant would be supplied by the Gaza Marine and Gaza would become more independent. Another project was to connect Gaza with the West Bank, with uh, infrastructure so that they can supply one another. Gaza can supply desalinated water to the West Bank and the West Bank can generate electricity and supply to Gaza. Um, and the fourth project was a, a port, a seaport, where basically the idea was to build a seaport in, technically not in Gaza, but in Egypt, in El Arish, right next to Gaza, and then the, um, but de facto it will be Gaza's seaport, and then uh, Gaza can start importing its own merchandise that will be checked by the Egyptian authority, but all of that was was going to really upgrade the quality of life in Gaza, and all of that went down the drain when, when, when Hamas did what it did. Um, so if, if you come into this uh, conflict with economic peace theories, they all collapsed um, with, with the October 7 attacks. Because if, if the idea is that at the end of the day, through economic development, through um, uh, improving the lives of the population, you can de-escalate a war, Hamas did the exact opposite. Hamas for the past two years has been agreeing to many economic projects initiated by Israel and Egypt and the countries around. And apparently it was all uh, lulling us along. It was preparing an attack and uh, the cost of it is immense to its own population, but apparently it was never, the desire of Hamas was never to govern the population. It has always seen itself as a, resistant, as a resistance force, as a liberation force that is temporarily in Gaza, but has absolutely no intent to actually govern Gaza. Um, and Israel had a, had a very rude wake-up call uh, in that sense. Indeed. Just another point of clarification. The, you described at the moment the kind of the scenario of the two, two trucks of fuel that go in on a daily basis, and that goes specifically to circumvent Hamas to the, uh, to the specific water desalination and, uh, and the hospitals. What was the, what was the supply of the fuel prior to October 7th? And what was the role that, uh, that Qatar that gave the, the, the $30 million that it was divided, as I understand, a third going to the, uh, the poorest families in a cash payment, a third to the civil servants, and a third was also for this diesel supply. Um, so what was, the, what was that capacity and where does that stand kind of going forward, I suppose? Right. So on a regular day, again, it's hard to give a, a, um, an accurate estimate because a lot of it is off grid. A lot of it is just private initiatives buying diesel and right under the radar of Hamas, uh, Gaza's population that doesn't want to get taxed and things like that. But according to UNRWA estimates, the Gazan population needs around 130,000 liters of diesel every single day to meet the bare minimum. That was the that was the kind of basic consumption in Gaza, 130,000 liters. So if you bring two trucks into Gaza every single day, that's half of the, right? But if we're, if we're talking about wartime measures and the diesel is is just for water desalination and just for the hospitals, then, then half is enough. But again, it's a logistical problem. 
And so uh, 130,000 liters, um, most of it came from Israel. Most of it came from uh, oil that was refined in the oil refineries in Haifa and then uh, given to Gaza. And again, who paid for it? Sometimes it was foreign aid. Sometimes Israel just took the beating. Sometimes it was Qatar. Sometimes uh, it was Egypt that sold the diesel to uh, Gaza. But when Egypt did that, it did that at a very high price. Egypt was profiting from it and Qatar was paying the bill. So um, Qatar was a uh, paying salaries to Hamas senior members. Um, it was paying for diesel and it was trying to create kind of economic relief to the lower social stratosphere in Gaza, which has been uh, completely neglected by Hamas authorities, which again, are not really authorities. They're more like a, a gang in control of the Gaza Strip that's taxing people uh, or they get hit, hurt by it. So it's like a, right, a, a criminal gang in control of the area. It's not really supplying anything that you would expect from a government. You know, when you when you think about what is the role of the government of a, of a government, it's to provide basic utilities, it's to provide education. Hamas doesn't provide education. It's uh, UNRWA uh, runs the schools in in Gaza. Um, it's not providing electricity. Israel is providing electricity, and the rest is coming from private generators that were bought with U.S. and U.N. and EU aid. Um, water, all the water desalination facilities are again foreign aid. Um, health. All of the hospitals are run by, right, you have the Indonesian hospital and you have the Qatari hospital and the hospitals are run by foreign aid. Hamas doesn't do anything other than just tax people and, you know, have the monopoly over the means of violence. So these foreign aid groups, uh, whether they are UN or Qatar or et cetera, were looking for ways to, some of the money would go straight to Hamas to appease them. And the rest of the money would go to the population and to the infrastructure, and right? Because if you if you give the money directly to the infrastructure, then Hamas will just take it. So you need to pay a bribe, so sort sort of right, to Hamas to to get them to approve an infrastructure project that is meant for the population. And so you can criticize Qatar and say it's not okay that Qatar, you know, funded Hamas, but Israel also did that. I mean, we also gave money to Hamas and. Uh, and, and the US also gave money to Hamas and the EU also, because that was the only way to help the population. If you didn't pay Hamas, Hamas just said no to anything. Uh, Israel wanted to develop the gas field for the benefit of the Gazan people and Hamas kept saying no until somehow through Egypt, Israel managed to bring money to Hamas. So the main impediment for the well-being of the Gazan population until now was, was Hamas. And when you're kind of looking at the future, and asking me if I'm optimistic regarding the future, then again, it, it really depends on what the future is. But in a future in which, let's say, Hamas is no longer, no longer has effective control over Gaza, I won't say eliminated, it's very hard to eliminate an idea or an ideology, but let's say the Hamas group is no longer under effective control in Gaza and someone else is governing the area, then these projects, all of these things that went under the drain, all of these things that you had to wait for years to to do anything in Gaza will will be accelerated. So in the day after the war, if Hamas is not in control of, of Gaza, then all of these projects, gas for Gaza, and connecting Gaza to the West Bank with infrastructure, and building a port in El Arish, and developing the Gaza Marine, that will happen in a much more accelerated way than if Hamas would still be in control. 
So I'm actually, I know it's weird to say it right now because, you know, you're looking at what's going on in Gaza. It doesn't seem like there's a, there's an optimistic kind of way to get out of it. But the, I, I'm very optimistic that in five years from now, um, I know it's weird to say, but life in Gaza would be better because you would have much better infrastructure. You would have countries coming in and building the infrastructure that they want and not just the ones that Hamas has been approving for to, to, to tax more. Um, and, and at the end of the day, the end of Hamas in Gaza is good news for the population itself. Of course, I'm not, there's a huge price to pay for it and I'm not diminishing that. But I am optimistic regarding the future of that area. Eli, thank you very much. That was a fascinating insight. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for inviting me.